Welcome to the WNCA Podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. WNCA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with the partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassos.org. I'll have those in the show notes. Hello, it's Chris. Hey, Chris, it's Jack Gates. How you doing, man? I'm good, Jack. Hold on, my uh, my earbuds are not functioning the way that they really must. Okay. One sec, please. Here we go. Okay, hello. Hey, Chris. Dang, okay, I'm just going to take these out. It's, it's funny, it rings in the earbuds, but then the uh, the audio doesn't come through. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I good. can hear you fine. I'm good to go. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Hislop, Executive Director of the Montana World Affairs Council. Chris worked for the United Nations, and prior to that with the United States Peace Corps and other humanitarian organizations around the world. In this episode, we discuss the role of the Peace Corps in U.S. foreign policy, and he gives advice on how to cooperate with humanitarian efforts in the field and talks through a couple examples. You're going to really enjoy this discussion, so let's get going. Well, it's good to hear from you again. Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate the opportunity. This is cool. And you were Peace Corps before you went into the UN, right? I was. And what was that like? I don't know if a lot of people that are on this show have ever experienced the Peace Corps or bumped into them when they were CA officers. But can you talk about that? Well, I'd be happy to, Jack, because um, I, I say this without exaggeration. It was, uh, you know, really one of the most important things I ever did in my life. I say that kind of looking back, but I say that presently who I am and what I'm doing was shaped massively by the two years as a Peace Corps volunteer. So I was two years in Kyrgyzstan, which is in Central Asia, in the former Soviet Central Asia. And this was in the 90s. This is just a couple years after the fall of the Soviet Union. And so it was amazing in that for me, I was the first American many, many people ever saw or met or what have you. So it was quite novel. Would you just walk down the street and people would be giving you the big eye like, who is that dude? (laughs) Yeah, you, you, you got a lot of that. But You learn quickly what clothes to wear, how to walk, where to go. So you're kind of trying the best you can to fit into the new culture without losing your own sense of morals and values. Right. You need to be able to live and work in a different place. And and that's challenging and fun and interesting. I loved it. And it's a great thing when you look at the American toolbox. Yeah. We have the three Ds, of course, and the development D of defense diplomacy and development lives the Peace Corps. And by all accounts, uh, a hugely effective tool in engaging people around the world, because one of our original points in our discussion, Jack, was about this real ground level stuff. Of course, things happen in the heady heights of Capitol Hill and, you know, State Department. But when you're on the ground, you are a part of a community like I was in Peace Corps. Right. I mean, this is where people really get to know America. Sure. The, the other America that people were learning at that place at that time was Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. 
<laughs> I mean, it was like, that was the thing, right? Yeah. Because that stuff, like videotapes got there and it was all karate right. stuff. So they think everyone jumps off of buildings and karate yeah. chops their breakfast They're for... like, for... yeah. <laughs> chops their exactly. eggs for breakfast. So you... <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> I mean, it's silly, but true. And then when you're a volunteer, you're there for two years. So it's not like a parachute in and run out. You're there. Right. And you get to know people, they get to know you. And I tell you, I just think it's one of the most effective tools in the American toolbox that is this, and it is insulated from political consideration. So although th there is some political consideration to where are these volunteers going to go for how long doing what, I mean, there's decisions that are made, but you're not a political tool. It's super clear to begin with. No one ever asks you, you know, you have to be sure. sure that you tell the Kyrgyz people that this is a good thing that America does. No, they never that's have not, you do that's that. Not, that's not how the Peace Corps works, right? Not at all. They can't do it. You've got to stay pretty neutral and impartial and independent from that stuff in order to get your work done and in order to stay safe. So anyway, I, I could go on for days on this one, Jack, but it was great for me. I loved it. Well, you know, you brought up something interesting, and, and it, it kind of reminds me of that book, The First 90 Days, and that... You get on ground and everyone, and like I said, everyone's kind of giving you the big eye, seeing what you do. Yeah. But then you start getting into a routine with your community and you start wearing yeah. clothes that they're kind of comfortable with, even though you're still wearing your American stuff as well. Yeah. And I bet at some point, because the gossip, it shoots out there. Hey, we've got this American living in the village or in this part of town. And I bet at some point it became a, a source of pride for that little locale that there's an American living there and he's, yeah. he's friendly and he, he gets his, he gets his chai over here and he gets his, you know, breakfast over there and he gets his groceries down the street. And because I noticed that even in Germany, when I was living in Germany is that they had a curiosity. <laughs> yeah. And it, it wasn't just the military, but it was the American engineers down the street or the state department person down the other road. It was just curious for him to see people from around the world living there and doing their own little routine. So I think that must be part of what builds that trust in their daily routine. Yeah, it's spot on that it does normalize over time, more or less. There is definitely, as you mentioned, the source of pride. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was in a kind of provincial capital, so it was more of a town, not a village. But there were plenty of my friends, Peace Corps volunteers, who were out in the village. And this one guy, you know, he was a language brain guy. You know, some people just learn languages, right? And this guy learned the Kyrgyz language like fluently. I hate that and guy. And it was just, it was weird <laughs> is what it was. <laughs> yeah, no, I, well, so it was a huge source of pride for that village that this guy, because they took part in it, you know, they helped him, they helped him learn and they felt this enormous pride. And so just as a Peace Corps volunteer, as with a civil affairs officer or anybody who's doing work like this, you know, that thing is good, right? But that thing has a benefit way beyond that pride, right? Suddenly, yes. when the community around you is invested in you, taking pride in you, knowing you, comfortable around you, they're taking care of you, just like we do in our communities here in America, by the way. Sure. There's nothing unusual about that dynamic. We tend to think it's strange, but it's not. It's the total normal human thing. You get to know somebody and you're like, oh, I got to look out for this guy. You know, he's not from here. He doesn't know our ways and he needs some help and I'm going to look out for him. So in Kyrgyzstan, there was not a huge security problem except for 
public drunkenness, now, particularly <laughs> in the evening. Not that it was really serious. It's and you downtown. had to... Make sure it's not downtown D.C. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You had to be super careful about that. And so your ability to get with your community and have them look out for you was the primary part of your personal security. Sure. The more that the community accepted you. And that's also what humanitarians do. I mean, that's the primary security concern for the humanitarian staff is you want to be accepted. And if you're accepted, you can count on improved security. You can't, for humanitarians, there's no guns, there's nothing that they can do to protect themselves that way, but they do it in, in this other way. And I think that would be no surprise to civil affairs officers. Yeah, because we're not heavily armored either. We don't come in with Bradleys. Yeah, right. We have to come in and it's it's our force of personality that really keeps us safe. Yeah. That's a great point. There was something that I thought about as you were saying that. This is what it hit me. As you were talking about all that work that you and your fellows did in Kyrgyzstan, I bet you that diplomats and aid workers working in the Kyrgyz region, I bet they still have benefits from that because you were there and you created that initial reaction, that spark of collaborative and trust. And I bet you they're still reaping the benefits from it. There's no doubt, Jack. The Peace Corps has three goals, and I think they achieve them well. First goal is to provide American expertise to foreign countries. Whether you're an English teacher, an agronomist, a small business expert, you know, whatever, the Peace Corps brings out technical expertise to support a country. The second goal is to expose Americans to the world so that the volunteer can learn about the world and understand how the world works. And the third goal, which is interesting, and I'm performing the third goal right now, which is when a Peace Corps volunteer comes back to the United States, the goal is to engage Americans in what happened and what goes on in the world because of your, your service. I don't see a lot of Peace Corps discussion, though, out there. Well, you don't see a lot of Peace Corps discussion, but there's two reasons for that. Number one is an enormous percentage of Peace Corps volunteers stay overseas, like I did for 20 years. So I finished my service and I stayed overseas. Right. The second thing is, is when I speak to the public, I'm speaking as the executive director of the Montana World Affairs Council now. But every time I do it, I make a, a three-sentence mention. I say, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. The third goal was for me to do these things, and I am performing that goal right now, right. thanks to you, the American taxpayer, because that's how I got there. And so I'm delivering on that goal, and I'm turning it. There's not a lot of dedicated stuff, but there's a lot of people like me who do jobs like me who are returned Peace Corps volunteers who do engage our communities in international issues. Sure. I just, as a communicator, I see the Peace Corps as underrepresented in the public conscience. Yeah, it comes and goes depending on the administration and the politics in Washington. But it, yeah, it, it's also a very low-budgeted thing. They don't get a lot of money, and so there isn't a lot of time spent engaging the American public. Maybe they could do some more. Check this out, Jack. Last month, my organization, we did a number of webcasts to bring international careers to students in Montana. 
And Carol Spahn, the director of the Peace Corps, the director, the big cheese, came on my webcast to talk to Montana kids. And so, yeah, they've, you know, letting Americans know what the Peace Corps does and letting them know, hey, it's a great opportunity. Well, if you share those links, I'll put them on the show notes. And if you have that cast, I'll certainly give you credit and put it on the show as well. Happy to. But anyway, is there any time where civil affairs and Peace Corps work together? You know, I don't really know. Uh, you and I could probably figure this out, Jack, because I'll give you from the Peace Corps perspective. A Peace Corps program is never fielded in a place of relative insecurity. And their bar for security is pretty high. I mean, things have to be very secure. Right. For the U.S. to deploy a group of Peace Corps volunteers. So that means if you plot out the map of where Peace Corps volunteers are, I'm guessing there's not a huge number of uniformed civil affairs officers in those same places. But maybe I'm wrong. I would surprise you. There's there's actually civil affairs operating in Poland okay. all the way to Lithuania right now. Mm -hmm. And just talking about how the U.S. and Poland are partners in security and defense. Yeah. And, you know, what's going on with NATO and how it all ties together. So they do education in the stable countries okay. or in Africa, like countries like Ghana, they go down there and they coach on how to counter wildlife trafficking. And yeah. They were working in Kenya, uh -huh. but they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> they really are. And so they're definitely crossing paths, but I don't know if they know how to like meet and greet or or what, because I'm not sure if they know how yeah. to complement each so other. So then they're definitely crossing paths. Yeah. And I think maybe also part of that, Jack, is going to be the situation itself. And, you know, where I was a volunteer, there was a certain sense, and I don't know if this is unique to the time and place I was, but there was a certain sense amongst the volunteer bunch that we didn't want anything to do with any other Americans. There were USAID people, there were embassy people. We weren't being unkind to them, but we also didn't seek them out because part of that Peace Corps experience, if you really want the real thing, which most people do, you don't want to be around anybody else. Yeah. You want to be just exactly. in your village. Yeah, you want to be in the village with those people. So that is a kind of overriding thing. However, there's another dynamic that occurs that maybe civil affairs personnel should be aware of is that. Peace Corps volunteers typically have a primary task, and that could be like teaching English. It might be a small enterprise development, forestry, um, but they also are asked to do a secondary thing. If you're a teacher, the secondary project is not in the school. It's in the community. So you get outside of your place of work, and you're meant to do some community support. And in those projects, oftentimes, volunteers will partner with, say, another NGO that's operating in the area or the embassy, which has some money. Like our village needs a community center. It's going to cost $10,000. And they go scrape up some money. They go to the embassy and the embassy becomes a partner. So that's maybe something to think about for civil affairs personnel to know that volunteers. And they're often looking for partners who can help them pull off that project. You know, that's, that's a good point. And civil affairs would go through the embassy to actually partner on that. Yeah. And, and one reason 
that I'm thinking is there's a lot of NGOs that don't like to work with the military. Yeah. When I was running vacation for DOD's response in Liberia to Ebola, we, yep. we were holding in the embassy all these interagency international councils for coordinating logistics and testing and what we could do to stem the spread of Ebola. A lot of NGOs wouldn't come in the tent. They, yep. just, they wanted nothing to do with it. They felt like it would break the trust they had with the population. Yeah. So it's a difficult thing. And I can imagine that some... Peace Corps people kind of have that same that same concern. Yeah, there is that for sure. I'm going to pick up on the point on humanitarians, and then we can swing back around to the volunteers. But your civil affairs colleagues will know there are different flavors of humanitarians, sure. but all of them operate under humanitarian imperative, as we call it, and the humanitarian principles. And amongst those principles is this idea of neutrality and impartiality. And so this is where there is a difference in the use of the word humanitarian in this case, Jack. And it's splitting hairs, but uh, humanitarians take this very seriously. And, sure. and civil affairs people, the very virtue of the fact that civil affairs are in a military, they are partial. Absolutely. There's no question about that. There's nothing wrong with that, but it counters what the humanitarians have to live and work by, because the moment a humanitarian becomes partial in a situation, then they can no longer meet the needs of all needy people. They're seen as partial. And so maybe one group will see that and say, well, look, you guys are on the American side. We saw you in the tent with them. We saw you talking to them. And so that must mean you're with them and we're against them. So you can't come into our patch and help our people anymore. You know, it can't be overstated that that part of the humanitarian principle is at the core of humanitarian action. And without it, humanitarian efforts fail. And so humanitarians take it seriously. That's a little bit less so, I would say, with regard to Peace Corps volunteers. Yeah, it's there, but Peace Corps volunteers are not living and working and acting as humanitarians, okay. yeah. they're doing something different. They are a kind of technical support, if you will, a cultural mm -hmm. engagement, but they're not providing humanitarian aid. So the situation of providing humanitarian aid is a contentious situation by definition, right. either in conflict or natural disaster, right? And so for a humanitarian to properly be able to deliver on the work, you have to stay neutral and impartial. That's what drives that dynamic. So here's here's an interesting hat trick I'm going to throw at you. How does someone like a civil affairs officer or a military member or even a diplomat or aid worker that's clearly in the U.S. tent, how do they coordinate with humanitarian workers so that it doesn't seem to taint their impartiality? I mean, you've got to have some kind of median in, medium in between, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So in any situation, as you have a civil affairs officer or within a, a civil affairs unit, you'll have somebody with some expertise on civil humanitarian slash military coordination. Sure. Humanitarians are also practical. They're like, look, the military is here. They're doing things. We still need to talk to them. So let's be practical, yeah. but let's figure out a way we can do it and maintain our principle. That's typically in then a more formalized forum where you go to the embassy or you meet on neutral ground at the UN or something like that. And you have your consultations and discussions. 
where it gets dicey, frankly, is out in the field. It's less in the meeting room. Right. If you're out in the field and you're in the tent and you're seeing uniform personnel, be they Americans or otherwise, that can really create a lot of problems for you. And that's the area I'm mostly concerned about. Yeah. yeah. Is out in the field. How do we how do we create that bridge between humanitarian operations and civil affairs operations to where we don't look like we're tainting humanitarians to seem like they're biased one way or another? The practical and serious and smart humanitarian will know that they need to speak with and coordinate with uh, civil affairs officers. Yeah. They know that it's not good to be seen repeatedly in public forum and to be close and to be hanging out. Right. That kind of thing. Civil affairs officers should know a humanitarian is not going to do that. They're not going to be the hangout person. Sure. But both the civil affairs officer and the humanitarian knows each other has things that are useful information, material, and, and what have you not. And so finding ways to communicate that maybe are a little bit less public, less in the public eye, appearing to be as one, because civil affairs officers learn like humanitarians in many places. Humanitarians were like, uh, no, I'm from this part of the UN. Oh, I'm from this other part of the UN. We're the only one who make that distinction. Nobody else cares. Everyone you know, they're like, who cares? Everyone just sees a blue hat. <laughs> you're all wearing a blue hat. You're all driving a white car. You know, you're all the same yeah, to yeah. people. And so when the humanitarians are with military personnel, it's also like that. It's like, oh, you're the same as those guys. And then civil affairs officers know this other conundrum that you face within the military which is you're the ones out there talking with the village leaders, right. but then you have infantry and fighting personnel. Right. And they're like, wait a second, you guys are wearing the same clothes. Are you the, you know, are you those guys or you say you're something else and it can be oh, very yeah. confusing. Yeah. I'll be honest, USAID hates having military in uniform helping support their operations. They call them action heroes. You know, they come in in a helicopter, <laughs> they got these uniforms, they're all over the place with the karate chop pointing hands and yeah. and the cameras go right to them and they just ignore aid, who's the lead usually in these yeah. humanitarian response and they get so mad. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> well, I know that stuff happens, but you know, too, I mean, Jack, that a nice thing for civil affairs is the Oslo guidelines. Those are the guidelines for civil military cooperation in a humanitarian situation from a humanitarian perspective, and it, it's actually quite explicit in that document and in that agreement, coordination and cooperation with the military is what we would refer to as a last resort. You know, if there is a situation where a humanitarian community cannot or is unable to operate, then you go to the military. A great example of that, South Asian tsunami. Right. And absolutely beyond all belief, you know, there's no way the global humanitarian community could deliver on that. So calling the military with its, its lift and logistics, this is the big thing. You look at the situation, you know, in the Balkans in the in the mid and late 90s, too. Sure. The need and the situation so far outstrip the humanitarian's ability to do the work that it was like, okay, damn, we need the military. And then you work yeah. with the military. Well, and that's, they really are the contingency of last hope. Yeah. In a lot of places, so that makes sense, and and it's reasonable for the military to expect that. I mean, that's kind of their job, right? When everything else fails, you call in these people because they're willing to just go into the worst of it. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion within the military, but broadly speaking, you also don't want to get mired in situations where you don't need to be there. 
a yes. lot of this humanitarian stuff is small potatoes and you know the humanitarian communities there well funded doing the work and you know you don't want to get embroiled in that stuff yeah well and this is the interesting thing my favorite civil affairs project is the CA team that supports an air force base out in the Agadez because the air force personnel actually raise money they donate money to the CA team to go into the village and help the economy, the weaving and manufacturing, and they buy stuff and they have collaborative festivals to build good grace between this Air Force base and the Agadez people. And it really works well. And that's one of those small town civil affairs projects that I think really exemplifies that similarity between Peace Corps and CA because it's in an area that's great. People who go out there and do the job love it. And it's not conflict-based. It's it's just developing those relationships so that the community and that airbase can live in peace. Yeah, humanitarians use the same dynamic. Before coming to Montana, I was working in Myanmar, uh, which had a huge humanitarian operation. But if you really break that down into a little more granular assessment of the situation, you had people who were displaced by conflict and living in camps. But those camps were interdispersed amongst villages, and those village people were not directly affected by conflict, but living there and essentially in the same situation as the people in the camps. But because you are displaced and living in a camp, you tend to get more visibility and therefore more assistance. But when you do that, then the people who are living in the villages around the camp are like, hey, what's going on? I'm in the same situation. How come they're getting free food and I'm not? And it creates a huge tension. I'm going to go to the camp. It creates a perverse incentive (laughs) to go into a camp. So humanitarians often like that will also support local surrounding communities, although they are not affected in the same way from the conflict or the natural disaster, but they are in need. And if you don't do something there, then you're creating a problem that you don't need in the first place. Uh, I had never thought of that. That's, that's genius. Hey, did you ever meet... Jason Tower of the U.S. Institute of Peace. He's the Burma country director. I got to advise a little bit on the National Unity Government. I met some of their folks and and sat with Jason. We talked about building public support around the National Unity Government and build pressure on the military that's in power to allow democratic rule to reemerge in the country. Oh, yeah. Well, look, USIP is an extraordinary organization. And I really sincerely admire the people who are working there, particularly those who are out in places like Myanmar. I spent five and a half years and I left before the coup. So I'm not there at this time, but you know, like many of us who've been out in these places and, and you live with the people there and you, you grow to understand them, you grow to love them, you grow to appreciate them. And, you know, I can't say enough for the people of Myanmar and, and what has happened to them and what is happening to them now. Sure. It's just they're not deserving of this fake. And anybody who can work on untying that knot, um, I, I really admire. My hope is that once we get democratic rule, we could also then get rid of the fentanyl camps that the PRC is supporting in the area, which should make everyone's lives a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Jack, you touched on a foreign policy my field there because what many people think you mentioned once there's some democracy there but one analysis is that these generals who took over their intent 
is to suppress opposition, get out of the Western eye for a few years, and then run a democratic election right, right. in which they will win. And then they will say, well, you Westerners, you wanted this democratically elected government. Here we are. We're your people now. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know. One certainly hopes that does not happen. But well, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's no way you could have a proper election there now. Just, oh, they've been would... they've been trying to pursue a uh, an election for a while, and and then and the unity government's been pushing against it. Yeah, that's a long road right there. Yeah, the military regime has to surrender first and leave the governance and have the unity government or something like it emerge to take power before that could happen. That's sadly a long way off, and I feel bad for for the people who are suffering now. Yeah, me too. It's a, it's a tough time for everybody there. So, well, I've, I've kept you on the phone for an hour and a half almost, an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, that's been great, though, Jack. I, I appreciate it. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I tell you, I mean, uh, I admire what you do, Jack, on your podcast. And I know that this is going, um, you know, hopefully the civil affairs personnel. And, you know, I've said it many times. I, I've got a great admiration. Thank you. Um, for the very hard work that uh, you all do. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Well, I appreciate your time. All right. You be well, Jack. Take good care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have the email and CA Association website in the show notes. And now, most importantly... To those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations, thank you all for what you're doing. This is Jack, your host. Stay tuned for more great episodes, 1CA Podcast.